Cool. Hey, we are in week two of a summer shorts, and we're supposed to be wearing shorts. I didn't think it was that hot today. Uh, I will be sweating in five minutes, I guarantee it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Splash zone. Um, people sat here once when it was hot. Now they sit back there. Uh, how many of you get the Seattle Times? It's a newspaper. Wow. I get it emailed to me. Is that better? Okay. I get this. How many get the Seattle Times emailed to you? How many of you just click on the Seattle Times when you see it pop up in Facebook? Okay. No one. So for the five of us, maybe we saw this article. Uh, there was an article uh, uh, last two weeks ago talking about Seattle's immense wealth. Have we heard about it? It's a fascinating, it's a two-part article. The second one came out on Friday. What it talks about is, it opens up with this story. This man walks into the Gucci store downtown, a store I've never gone into. Uh, and he goes and he looks out. It's the middle of February, right? Those of you who were here in February, what was February like? Rainy, cold. He saw a pair of sandals in Gucci selling off the shelves someone go ahead and guess the price of the sandals four hundred dollars man you guys will be really bad on prices right <laughs> whoever said one dollar wins hey good job four hundred dollars for a pair of sandals in february what's the problem with this it's off season it's a good deal yeah that's a lot of money for a pair of shoes that we'll wear for three months, right? It goes on and on to mention the various ways Seattle's economy is so booming. Did you know, many of you who rent know this, Seattle's rental market is ninth in the world. What? Yes, how many of you have landlords? How many are landlords? And you realize that, hey, this is a good time to be a landlord. Seattle's housing market has gone up leaps and bounds in the past six, seven years. Those of you who bought eight years ago are loving it. What this article exposes is that Seattle is extremely wealthy. I saw the high five. That's awesome. Seattle is experiencing this great big bump in wealth. And it's well-deserved, right? We have Microsoft. We have uh, Amazon, we have Boeing, we have Zillow, we have who else? All those people. All sitting right, Costco, I love Kirkland. Uh, Costco, the, the, the product. Uh, Costco's here, <laughs> the city. Uh, but we're seeing this immense wealth in Seattle. Second article comes out on Friday. You flip through it, and now there's the dark side. People are being priced out of their homes that have lived there for 30, 40 years. The opioid addiction on Aurora, not just Aurora, anywhere, is skyrocketing. Human trafficking. Where you see this great deal of wealth, there is always this underbelly that goes completely unexposed, and people don't know what to do with it. But here's what we do. We go, well... We're wealthy, but at least we're not as bad as name a city. 
San Francisco. We're not as, as the separation of wealth isn't as bad as it is there, or New York City, or Washington, D.C. We don't have the corruption <laughs> uh, that they have. We do. It's just called different names. Or we're not as flamboyant with our wealth as they are in Hollywood when there's a million dollars sitting at an intersection and there's only two cars there. We're not as showy with it. At least we're not like so-and-so. It's weird when you read an article in the Seattle Times, that newspaper thing, and then you open up your Bibles to a book like Amos. And in Amos, there's this, this verse that says, You cows of Bashan, you sell the poor so you can afford a pair of sandals. And you start going, oh boy, they're talking about us. It's pretty condemning. It's pretty convicting. Even not just as a city, but as a person. You read, start reading the book of Amos, and Amos begins to expose things in you that you thought were hidden, that you didn't think were a problem or was a problem in your own hearts. Selling the poor for some slaves, and it goes on and says, and then you exploit people so you can whiten your teeth. All of this injustice happening in the middle of God's chosen nation. And they were blind to it because they were doing so well. And they missed the underline or the underbelly of everything that's happening. Amos comes to us at an interesting time in Israel's history. Israel began with a promise. The whole nation of Israel began with one single promise. And the promise was this in verse 12 of Genesis. I'm going to make you a great nation. And the only reason that God said, I'm going to make you a great nation was, as you can read on the screen, was to bless other nations. I'm going to bless you so you can bless other people. If you count the words blessing there, there's one, two, three, four, five times the word bless is used. So you start to see this is a pretty impactful verse. God is blessing Israel so that they can be a blessing. And they were blessed. They go to slavery, then after Exodus, they come out. They're a mighty nation. They've been delivered. They themselves were slaves for 400 years, and then they're delivered. King David takes the throne, this mighty army. He starts taking over and begins to expand Israel's borders. He is being blessed by God. David dies. Solomon takes over, and then Solomon makes the nation even more powerful even more wealthy. In First Kings, the queen of Sheba comes to town and she says, you guys are loaded. You got everything here. God has surely made you blessed. And Solomon went, yeah, we're doing pretty good. And then after Solomon dies, there was a man named Jeroboam that didn't like the guy who took over Solomon's son named Rehoboam. I guess they liked names that sounded the same. So Jeroboam was upset. He didn't like the tax increases that Rehoboam was going to give them. So he took off and he took 10 tribes and they split, caused the civil war. And they took 10 tribes and went to the northern area. And those 10 tribes called themselves the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes, the Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, stayed south and they called themselves the nation of Judah. And this is what happens. Then Jeroboam is a mighty king. If we looked at him from 
just the normal political power-wise, Jeroboam was an awesome king. More money comes into Israel. More weapons, more armies, bigger armies. He expands Israel. And something interesting begins to happen. Israel, the former slave, becomes Israel, the slave trafficker. And Jeroboam, loved by the people of Israel because of all the great wealth he is giving, but if you talk to a prophet, does not like the prophets, do not like Jeroboam because he forgot the promise that they were supposed, they were going to be blessed in order to be a blessing. Amos lives in Tekoa, this little region just south of Israel, in between Judah and Israel. So they're kind of stuck in the middle. He's a farmer of sycamore trees, and he has enough of this. And he goes up to Jeroboam's courts and says, I have a message from God for you. Prophets in those days were actually listened to. They weren't afraid of. And so they come to, he comes to Jeroboam. This farmer begins to speak truth to power, and he starts to expose things about Jeroboam. The first thing he exposes is the sin that he's living in. Standing in front of him, he says, Jeroboam, God's got a bone to pick with you. God's got a prophecy against Israel. And Jeroboam probably says, all right, I'll hear it. And then Amos begins in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, for three sins of Damascus, even four. Three, even four, was a way of saying, some people say it's three plus four equals seven, which is the number of perfection. There's a better way to look at it. It says three plus four. Three is considered full. Your fourth one is overflowing. So three sins. Damascus is full of sin. Their fourth one. Now they're overflowing. And if I'm Jeroboam, I'm like, sweet, you're talking about Damascus. This is going to go well. So three plus four, Damascus, I, they have sinned. I will not relent, for they had threshed Gilead with sledges, having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazel. They had sinned, and they were very, very brutal to the nations that they conquered with their armies. And so God says, look, Damascus, the capital of Syria, I'm, I, you've sinned this much. I've had it with you. Damascus, this is what I'm going to do to you. And then he goes on. This is the judgment on Damascus. So Jeroboam's listening. And then, verse 6, For three sins of Gaza, even four, I will not relent, because you took captive the whole communities and sold them to Edom. Gaza, just south of Israel, had taken captives, and just like it says, they became slave traders, sold them to Edom. Edom will get to for three sins in verse 9, Tyre, even four, I will not relent. For you sold whole communities again to Edom, disregarding a treaty of a brotherhood. So you have slavery, and then you have Tyre going against the treaty. And then for three sins, even four, uh, Amos is going through naming all of these countries. He gets to Edom and says, look, you've slaughtered the women in the land, and because of this, because your anger raged continually and your flames went unchecked. The Edomites had treated the Israelites, and the Edomites and the Israelites were kind of cousins, but they treated the Israelites with contempt, and they attacked them over and over again. And so God says, for three of those sins, and here's the fourth, I'm going to do this. And then Amos continues. He has a whole list of countries he's going on to. He says, for three sins of Ammon, even four, I won't relent because you ripped open pregnant women 
of Gilead in order to extend their borders. They practiced what was a total war. Any kind of living thing they would just demolish and kill, borderline on genocide. And then, for three sins of Moab, even four, I won't relent because you burn the ashes of the bones of the king of Edom. Uh, that was a way to not respect another country. They're saying, we're going to totally destroy your king. We're not even going to seek peace. And so if you're Jeroboam here, you're like, this is awesome. All of these other people are terrible. Keep going. I like this. These are all of his enemies. He says, for three sins, even four. Judah, I won't relent because you rejected the law of the Lord and you haven't kept its decrees. It walked away from the Torah. So here you have Amos talking to the most powerful man in the world as the biggest army. And this prophecy was supposed to be against Israel. But here's what Amos is doing. I got creative yesterday on PowerPoint. Stephen, is that slide... If it doesn't work, we're going to miss out on some great art. <laughs> oh, yes. Copy, paste, target. Um, that blue thing in the middle was my attempt at a river. Um, I don't, you see it? Yeah, it's there. You have, is, you have all these nations around. Do you see what Amos was doing? I'm going to start at the vast end of the earth. We're going to go Damascus, and then we're going to go down to Edom, then we're going to go to Gaza. But what Amos is doing is he's slowly bringing in the judgments, and then finally, he, and when Jeroboam is comfortable thinking, yes, all of the people around me are just downright terrible. I get it. He goes, ah, your turn. He says, for three, even four, Israel... Here is what you've done. And he goes on to list a judgment and exposes Israel's sin to the tune of three times longer than any other nation that he's mentioned. He says this, and I'll paraphrase, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You deny justice to the oppressed. You, the father and son, you use the same girl. They lie down beside any altar, idolatry, you silence the prophets and you force the Nazarites to drink wine. The Nazarites were the ones who would take a vow. They wouldn't go near anything dead and they wouldn't drink any, any kind of wine. And they force them to drink wine. Amos is saying to the king, look, yeah, you're not as bad as the other people. <laughs> you're worse. And you don't even look at it. You don't even recognize it. We look at this, and this is the trap that we fall into, because I do the same thing. I'm not that bad. I lie a little bit. At least I'm not doing drugs like that guy. Or, oh yeah, the, uh, I, you know, I, I, I might drink a little too much from time to time, but at least I'm not sleeping around like you know who. At least I'm not that bad. Or, I dabble with pornography, so-and-so. So a little bit, but, you know, at least I haven't left my wife like that person or left my husband like that person. We do the same thing in our lives. At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I have bitterness in my heart. I have contempt in my heart. But have you read the president's Twitter lately? Oh, man, that guy's the worst. We say things like this. 
I hear things like this. I hear myself saying things like this. The sin of Israel here had gone unchecked because they were too busy looking at other people and comparing themselves to others instead of looking inward at themselves and going, I have a problem here. They were left unchecked. They were left unguarded. Or they were left guarded and looking at other people and comparing themselves while the entire sin was raging inside their camp. And this is what God is saying to Israel. Yes, those sins around you are so bad, but beware of this. There is a sin lurking in your own camp, and the tragedy is you're so busy looking at other people that you can't even recognize it. You're blind. Or even worse, you're indifferent. You don't even care. And he says, wake up, Jeroboam, wake up the people around you, because you might not be aware of it, but I am. And it doesn't matter how good you look in comparison to others. I see what's going on inside your borders. And God is telling these people, I'm not pleased. For three sins and even four, you are overflowing with sins. This warning to Israel is the same warning to us. Not to let comparison elevate the blessing that God has given you. Not to let comparison cause you to forget the call that he's placed on you. We, like Israel, have the same kind of charge. We've been blessed to be a blessing. We have been given things in order to give other people things, in order to pass down the blessings and give it away. And yet we sometimes let our calling stand in the way of our responsibility. You have a great calling, just like Israel did. And your great calling leads to a great responsibility. And sometimes we fail. And Israel has been failing this entire time. They compared themselves with other people. I'm not as bad as Judah. I'm not as bad as Edom, but I'm still pretty bad. And their comparison with other nations led them also to compare themselves religiously to other nations. They brought in idols. It affected the way they worshipped. They brought in other gods. They, Israel, when they left and they made their own nation, they built two big temples and they put golden calves in there right alongside the, the idol or the, the place where they worshipped the one true God. They had idols to the gods of sex, the gods of war, and the gods of weather, Baal, Asherah, and Anat. They had these three gods right alongside the God of Israel the one true God, the one who had brought them out of captivity. And because of this, they started to resemble and worship the false gods instead of the one true God. And when you start to worship other things, you begin to look like what you worship. The other three gods, Anat, Ammon, and Baal, didn't care so much about social justice. They didn't care so much about caring for the neighbors. So guess what? Israel stopped caring for their neighbor. They started to use people. They started to, to sell people as commodities. And so chapter 4, God starts talking about their religious gatherings and saying, this is just a bunch of noise because you're worshiping these other gods and you're neglecting the call that I've placed on your life. You've put others in front of me and now you're all out of whack. You're starting to use people. These other gods don't require justice that God demands. And so they began 
the people of Israel began to start acting like their other gods. But then God says this through Amos, but I've tried to get your attention to bring you back in. I've tried to call you over and over again. And what we see displayed here is this kind of progressive discipline that God uses in the Old Testament to get their attention. In chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I gave you empty stomachs in order that you had, would return to me, but you didn't return to me. In verse 7 of chapter 4, I withheld rain in order that you would return to me, but you never came back. I struck your gardens and your vineyards. I gave you blight and mildew and locusts devoured your olive trees, yet you still didn't come back to me. I sent plagues among you as I did in Egypt, yet you have not returned. The plagues in Egypt were direct attacks on the false gods that the Israelites may or may not have been worshiping at the time. So when God says he sends plagues, he's trying to get their attention like he did decades and centuries ago in Egypt. And yet this time, it still doesn't work. He says, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, I sent you into exile and destroyed your cities, and yet you still haven't returned to me. Over and over again in chapter 4 of Amos, you see God reaching out, trying to get their attention, yet it doesn't work. And finally, God says this, therefore, in verse 12, prepare to meet your God. And we look at that and go, oh, he's going to kill him. It's not what he does. This is the last-ditch effort. Usually what it means in other senses is it's a, par- it's a phrase that pops up, and what it says is God's going to show them face-to-face. He's going to, don't make me come down there, is what he's saying. I'll come down and see you face-to-face. This is what I want from you. I've been trying to get your attention. I've been trying to use the subtle hints to call you back to me. Now I'm going to have to come and stand in front of you. But even in that, the pattern shows us that it still won't work. Israel will keep going and doing your own, their own thing. Israel's been so blinded by comparison. They've been so polluted in their worship. And so God begins to pl- plead with them over and over again in chapter 5. Seek me and live, he says. Seek the good. Seek justice. Do not seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. These were the temples that they had set up originally to worship God. And what, the, what happened was when the, when the plagues happened, when the famine happened, when the locusts came, they instantly went to the idols of weather, the idols of war, the idols of sex, in order to get their prayers answered. And so God's saying, I seek me. Don't go running off into your other places. Come back to me. This is what I want from you. I want you to stop looking to other nations. I want you to stop looking to other gods. And I want you to seek me so that you will live. He's calling them back to a standard. According to Amos, when true worship happens... Justice will roll like a river, and righteousness will come down like a a never-failing stream. This is what God wants in chapter 5. This is the point of them being a nation, that justice would be present, that righteousness would happen. Those are two Hebrew words that are very important for us to know. The first one, the the Hebrew word tzedakah, which is righteousness, means right and equitable relationships. 
This is what is required. Seek God so that you may have this. And then the second one, justice, which is the word mishpat, which means actions that you take in order to have justice, in order to have right and equitable relationships. God is saying when you search for other gods and you compare your religion to the other religions, you'll be missing out on justice, you'll be missing out on righteousness, you'll be missing out on everything. Because you become what you worship. One author says this, you become like what you worship when you gaze in awe and admiration and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of that character or of the, of the object you've been worshiping. For Israel, they're starting to look like their idols and they're ceasing to look like the one who founded their nation. They're not blessing the people around them. It might look like a little tiny thing that's different from them, but over time, they are completely off course. I have a friend that has a boat down here at Silshow, and he took us sailing one time, and I think you were on the boat this time. And we were up in Edmonds, and then we turned around because it was getting dark, and the, the sails were up, but then all of a sudden, there's no wind. And that's, that's a problem with the sailboat. And we're trying to come back down, and it's getting late. And so he goes, and he, he turns on the engine, which is a cheater's way, I guess. And, and, and then he sets up the autopilot. And I was watching him do this. He got his chart out, and where we were, he figured out the, the degree to get back to Silshow. And then he went down to the galley and brought up an ice chest, and we all sat on the top of the boat, and we let the boat do the work. And I'm sitting there wondering... If he had marked the autopilot to go one degree west away or one degree off to the west, where would we end up? Slowly but surely, when we're in Edmonds, it would may look like we're going the right direction, correct? But over time, we would end up further and further and further out into the middle of the sound rather than where we'd want to be. The longer you go in the wrong direction, even though it's one degree off, the further you get because that one degree grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. This is what happened with Israel. Oh, it's just a little bit of Baal worship. No big deal. Ten years later, it's full-fledged Baal worship. No big deal. Oh, it's just a little bit of the God of sex. Who doesn't want that, right? Let's just worship them. Oh, 15, 20, 100 years later, it's completely down the line and you've gone further and further and further away. The lesson here to us is what is it just a little bit of in you? Oh, it's just a little bit of this. It's no big deal. It's not going to hurt. It's just a little bit. Your life with Christ, your life with God is ruled by the little bits, not the big chunks the little bit of compromise, the little bit of fudging, the little bit of injustice that you might think happens, the little bits end up to be a lot of bits over time. And Amos is calling Jeroboam saying, come back, seek the right direction, seek the right heading. He exposes their pollution and exposes their worship as frauds and as shams. When you seek the Lord, justice will happen. And that's the only way it will happen. Then finally, he points them back or he re-exposes them to the right standard. God gives Amos three visions in chapter 7. The first vision, he says, it's, if you have your Bibles, turn there. If you have your apps, go there. The first vision, he's giving them of what's going to happen. 
The, the first vision, he says, I'm going to send locust swarms and after the king's share that had been harvested and the second crop that was coming. And basically, I'm going to destroy everything. And then Amos says, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. And then a very interesting phrase, the Lord relented. Then God said, okay, you're right. That's not good enough. This is what the Lord, sovereign Lord. And so the next vision comes. The sovereign Lord is calling judgment by fire and dry up everything that devoured the land. And then Amos says again, sovereign Lord, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. And then the Lord relented and said, that's not going to happen either. And then finally, the last vision. He says, this is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built there true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? Amos said, a plumb line. The Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among you, among my people of Israel. I will spare them no longer. The word standing there is a picture and a posture of firmness. He might have relented from the other two, which is good. God changed his mind. He's not going to totally destroy them. But this one, he's not going to budge. He's holding a plumb line. How many of you have ever used a plumb line? A few of us that have made walls. It's a string with a weight at the end of it. And it tells you what's straight. You tie it to something that you know is level. And it comes down straight. So when you're building a wall, you know that the wall is vertically sound. I tried building a wall without a plumb line once. It was awful. Very easy to knock over. And so God is standing firm and he's holding a plumb line and he says, this is the standard to which I'm going to hold you to. This is what's vertically correct. And in order to be a sound, in order to be the nation that you want, that I wanted and that I envisioned in this, this is what it's going to look like. Vertically, this is going to be sound. This is going to be straight. This plumb line was pointing to the true standard. The standard that was set back in the foundations of Israel. Back when it said, this is how you're going to live. And then he hands them the Torah and says, this is how you're going to treat everybody. When you seek me, when you seek the true standard, the horizontal relationships will take care of themselves because you're seeking right the vertical relationships. If you are out of whack vertically between you and God, your horizontal relationships will suffer. He's saying this is what level is. I have a wall in my office, and it's frustrating because it's not straight. I hang things on it, and I sit back in my chair. I'm like, didn't I just straighten that? And I go back to it, and I put it straight. And so finally, I was like, what is happening here? Someone is messing with me in the four steps it takes me to get back to my seat. Someone is reaching in and messing with me. So I took my phone out. And you know your phone has a level on it? For those of you who don't know, it's in the compass. Swipe and it pops up. And I put it against the thing. It's like, no, this picture is totally level. It's totally straight. I couldn't have hung any more straight. The screen is green. It looks right. And then I put it against the wall. And I put it against the corner where the ceiling and the wall meet. The whole ceiling is slanted. This building is terrible. The whole ceiling is slanted. And it's making everything in the room, in order for things to look straight, they have to be tilted slightly to the left. This is what God is saying to the people of Israel. 
You can't compare your relationship with God to the people around you. You can't look at somebody and go, oh, they're doing good, or they're doing, eh, okay, I must be doing better. Because if they're like the ceiling in my, in my office, a little bit off, you're a lot of it off. You can't compare your worship to other people around you. Well, I lift my hands when I sing. They don't. I'm doing better. You can't compare and get trapped in this comparison, Amos is saying to Israel and saying to us, you need a higher standard. You need the standard that's set before us in Christ. He is the standard. His call is the standard. He calls you to do good things, not sit around the room and say, I'm better than so-and-so. You have been made workmanship, made in Christ Jesus to do great things. And in order to do those great things, we need to have our eyes on Christ as the true standard to who we are and how he's made us. The plumb line is Jesus, not the person next to you, not your neighbor. And if we stop comparing ourselves to those people and start comparing ourselves to his call, justice will, will flow in our streets. We live in a wealthy city. We all have been given privilege. Some of us have more privilege than others. Some of us have privilege based on our bank accounts. Some of us, a lot of us have privilege based on the color of our skins. We have been blessed in order for us to bless others, to stand up for those who are looked down upon for their wealth, to stand up for righteousness for those who are looked down upon for where they live or how they live or what kind of camping gear they have, to stand up for those who are discriminated just by the way they look. We have been given a lot. We have been blessed and in order for us to be a blessing to others, we need to search out what Christ is calling us to and stand up for righteousness and justice for those around us, even in the middle of a city who doesn't really seem to bother with it. We talk like we do, but we don't. So what would it look like for a community of about 100 people to seek justice? to seek the true standard. How would that change your neighborhoods? How would it change your homes? To get your eyes off your neighbors and get your eyes on Christ and seek justice so that it may flow into the dry lives of those around us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've given us such a great call, but you've also given us such a huge responsibility. Lord, like Israel, you've blessed us so that we might bless others. You've called us so that we might point people back to you. And Lord, may justice flow from us because of that. May we seek you as a standard and we put you in the middle. May we be more concerned with our vertical relationship than we are with how we look compared to our neighbor's vertical relationship. Because the more and more we're aligned with you, the more and more our horizontal relationships will work and will be level. Lord, may we return to you so that we may truly live. And it's in your name we pray.